the prophets trying to walk people out of a world that has failed and walk into a new world of goodness that God is giving them. And, of course, the prophets experience great resistance because (laughs) people don't want to do that. (laughs) And, see, I think, Deb, that's exactly the situation we are in in our society. The old world of white domination has failed. We're not going to recover that. It's very useful to understand our social situation as a liminal moment that wants us to face up not only to new possibilities, but also to great ambiguity. And I think we're seeing the anger and the fear and the hate about how uneasy we are of having to live in that moment. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi everybody, welcome to the Betwixt podcast in partnership with MissyAlliance.org. I'm your curator, Deb Gregory. Well, already astute listeners have noticed that there is a strange phrase that gets used in this podcast, liminal space. So this is the concept at the heart of the podcast, and it's kind of what this episode is going to be all about. And to help me tell the story, I've invited eminent biblical scholar and prolific author, Dr. Walter Brueggemann, to join me in conversation. And we're going to talk about the significance of liminal space at the intersection of faith and culture. But first... What is liminal space? Well, liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which simply means doorway or threshold. So when we stand at the edge of something between one thing and another, that space, that threshold or margin is liminal space. French anthropologist Arnold van Gennep first coined the term in 1909. He studied how transformation was acted out in societies around the world. So he broke down transformational rituals within three universal stages. So the first is a stage of separation from the old. Then there was a crossing of a threshold into an in-between or marginal place. And then a return with a new role status or identity. That in-between margin is the liminal space. Other anthropologists like Victor Turner and Mary Douglas describe this transitional and transformational zone as full of necessary ambiguity that makes the distinction between one thing and another possible. So we need this special in-between space in order to make change. So another less boring way of saying this is, liminal space is often invisible. It's the margins the kern between letters, the rest between notes, the breath between words. It's the dawn of a new day. There's a ravine near my house that comes alive with the first break of sunlight. Amber rays of sunshine pierce through the cracks of trees. Colors pop out of the darkness in deep, rich hues. Chipmunks scuttle under logs. Squirrels scamper down the trees. A raccoon scurries into the drainage pipe. This is liminal space. Those beautiful few moments when most people are still sleeping, but the earth is most awake. 
But not all liminal space is quite so magical. It's also the dusk, the experience of separation, darkness, and even death in order for newness and life to burst forth. It's taboo, the wild, the dangerous space outside the social camp, the margins where we become other, the wilderness where we feel cut off from life and sometimes from death. Marked by both the holy and the taboo, this is where our hopes, dreams, and fears, and values are most vibrant. And this is where I hope to take you with this podcast, into the sacred and dangerous in-between spaces. Everyone experiences liminality because it's where social and personal transformation happens. It's where we perform our rituals and rites of passage, where we shift our identity from one status to another. It's puberty, weddings, pregnancy, graduation, baptism. Yet liminality is often associated with the marginalized, and that's why we must hear their voices. And you know, women, we have been the gatekeepers of liminal space. Transcending time and culture, the feminine presence echoes with cries of joy at the dawn of new life. With wails of mourning on the eve of death, fluxing between one state and another, women have always occupied liminal zones in betwixting silence and mysterious power. And so this podcast is devoted to threshold conversations, particularly the liminal spaces at the intersection of faith and culture. Traditionally, theology and even the interpretation of feminine roles and metaphors within scripture have been conducted almost exclusively by men. And so reframing some of these conversations is at the heart of the series that we just started called The Image of God and the Feminine Experience. But Betwixt is not only about femininity, it's about humanity. As we continue that series, we'll also mix in conversations with people of all backgrounds, color, gender, and social status, as we seek to illuminate the transformational places, practices, and people among us. And through these conversations, my hope is that we will discover who we really are and what we really believe and how to cultivate shared values to make a stronger and more meaningful society and church. And so now, at long last, please join me for one such conversation with a man who writes a lot about liminal space in his theological works, Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Where are you? I'm in Columbus. I'm actually in our gorgeous public library. They have these study rooms. Yeah. Which are great for podcasting, but it's so ironic because today, um, the room next to me, there's a man in there with his Bible open, praying really loudly. (laughs) (laughs) I think you were supposed to be next to him. (laughs) Yes. So he may join us for our conversation today. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining this conversation with me about liminal space. Sure. The podcast is called Betwixt, and it's kind of a play on Victor Turner's concept of liminal space, where he says it's a space that's neither here nor there. It's betwixt and between well-defined positions in the social structure. So it's kind of like an identity limbo. So that's kind of the starting point for me as I'm really interested in exploring many, many liminal spaces through the lens of of faith and culture, that intersection. And so most of my listeners will not be aware of the concept of liminality. Um, Could you take a shot at defining it? What does it mean to you? 
Well, I'm I'm no uh, I'm no expert about liminality, but my understanding of it is it is a uh, social context or a social situation in which one has some freedom about one's old, long established assumptions about reality and begins to live in an open, ambiguous moment when other things become thinkable and become possible that may emerge as the new reality. So it really is a moment between an old, assumed reality and what may emerge as a new reality that is not yet in hand. And I I think the most immediate experience of of liminality that I can remember, I I was a graduate student in New York City, and uh, we had a, I think, a 16-inch snow that immobilized the city. And uh, the result of that was that people had to walk everywhere, and they had to walk slowly because the snow was very deep, and people began to talk to each other, and it became almost like a festival in the street of people who had never spoken to each other and never even acknowledged that they were there. And what what that snowstorm did was to pull people out of their old patterns of life and for a moment to experiment with new kinds of behavior that could conceivably have led to new social awarenesses and new social patterns. So that when I think of liminality, that's what I think about. And I think that uh, Jesus' parable uh, then is something like a snowstorm uh, in which it invites people to think afresh in ways the pattern of which we can't really see. So that when uh, Jesus told a parable, uh, he really left his disciples bewildered because they weren't quite sure what he meant. Uh, And that's what he intended. He didn't intend to give a new blueprint or a new answer. He intended to open up new space where faith and life could be shaped differently. So uh, I'm not sure that's fully uh, faithful to Victor Turner, but that's my understanding of it. He uses a word for that community that happens in that space. He uses the word communitas. That it's, yes, it's yes. A, a little different than just a community based on, um, you know, where you live or, you know, where you go to church or whatever. It's based on a, some sort of shared experience that is different. That's right. That's right. That shared experience doesn't dictate anything. It doesn't require anything, but it creates open space where some choice can be exercised. Mm. I've heard it said that it's impossible for us to have real lasting change unless we go through liminal space. I think that's exactly right. If we don't go through liminal space, then the new form into which we move hardens and becomes just like the old form. I think that's right. Mm. I wanted to ask you if you can remember when you were first introduced to the concept of liminality. Well, I think uh, I was fairly far along uh, in my work before I got to that. I I read uh, Victor Turner, I suppose, in seminary fairly early, but I think I didn't understand how that was. And then uh, later, I got into Paul Ricoeur, and Paul Ricoeur uh, helped me understand imagination. And my take on liminality is that it is the capacity 
to do more than uh, one set of imaginations about our life and uh, to be able to host uh, some alternatives uh, into which we might move or develop. So I suppose my debt is much greater to Rapport than it is to Victor Turner, but I do understand that he's the primary articulator of the idea. Okay. I love that you you even read Turner in seminary. I don't know that that's any longer required reading. <laughs> well, it wasn't required reading then, but I, I just kind of stumbled into it. And then uh, when I began to read more in pastoral care, and I did my own work in pastoral therapy for a quite extended period, I came to understand that health really requires the capacity to host and entertain a shape of the world and a shape of one's life other than the one we take for granted. So that was how my thinking developed about that. Mm. I think it's interesting that that really came out of your your lived experience in working with people. Yep, right. And how did that inform maybe your lens as you went back and looked through Scripture and studied through Scripture? Did you begin to see those traces? Well, I did, because I've I've invested a great deal in imagination uh, from Ricoeur, and I came early to the awareness that prophetic poetry in the, in the prophets of ancient Israel really are imagining a world other than the one that their listeners assume, and what they want and hope out of their poetry is that those who hear their poetry can begin to take this alternative world uh, seriously as a real world in which to live. Uh, And then I spent some time on uh, Jesus' parables, uh, which seemed to me doing exactly the same thing, Mm. in which Jesus uh, is asking people to imagine a world other than the one that they take for granted. And then I sort of generalized that to say, well, that's really what Scripture as God's lively word is really doing, it intends to create a liminal situation in which we can make transit to uh, other ways of being. That's been very big in my scholarship. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's what really drew me. Uh, When I became aware of this concept of liminality, I began to see it in your work and thought, oh, goodness, okay, this guy gets it. (laughs) 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 Began the journey of learning through what you, you're you learning. Yeah, good. Looking at scripture, you kind of tapped on a little bit about, about being sacred. And so another anthropologist, Arnold Van Gennep, he talks about liminal space as not just between an old and a new, but that there's something sacred happens there that distinguishes between um, the sacred and the profane. Do you have any sense of that? Well, uh uh, there, there is a tradition in biblical faith that wants to distinguish between the sacred and the profane in the priestly tradition in the, the book of Leviticus and Ezekiel and so on, but I'm not very hot on that. I think that the main thrust of the Bible is to insist that God's mysterious, inscrutable will for life permeates everything, and you cannot uh, separate out a zone in which now you you might be able to identify zones in which God's power for life is more intense or more acute, and we call those moments sacramental or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to overstate the distinction to separate that out because I want to insist 
that our most non-sacred times are uh, loaded with the mystery of God. Hmm. Yes. And I think that's a theme that, if we look carefully, just is all over Scripture. Well, I, I think it's contested. Jesus, for example, in uh, Mark 7, has a big dispute uh, with his Jewish opponents because they want to talk about what's clean and what's unclean. So that's there, but I think, in at least in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus just blows that distinction out of the water and uh, will not have any of it. So I think you can see traced through the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think you can see an argument about that. And uh, as much as I am able, I want to be on the side that refuses that kind of neat uh, separation of the sacred and the non-sacred. Can we talk about some of the themes that you you do see that liminal space, especially of imagination, opened up in Scripture? Well, I've written uh, uh, several books about that, but let me talk about one uh, nice case. The middle part of the book of Isaiah, uh, which uh, scholars call Second Isaiah, is addressed to Jews who are in Babylon being displaced from their homeland. Those Jews, uh, for the most part, are in despair. They think that God has abandoned them, that they are hopeless, that they're never going to get out of the grip of the Babylonian Empire. And Second Isaiah, in poetry that is very familiar to us from Handel's Messiah, really speaks to them about the power of God being at work to create life for them beyond the control of the Babylon Empire. And I think that that act of imagination that the poet Isaiah commits uh, is uh, really the creation of a liminal moment. Mm. Uh, For example, in Isaiah 55, he says to the Jews in Babylon, uh, Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you spend your money on bread that does not nourish you? And and he's attacking Jews that want to succeed under the pressure of Babylon, or he is attacking Babylonian consumerism, in which you do work that is not satisfying, and you buy things that are not satisfying. And what he says is, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live that way. There's another way for you to live if you take seriously the, the goodness and the generosity of God. Uh, so I, I think that is a perfect example of the way in which this poetic discourse invites people to imagine their daily life and their daily behavior uh, in ways that can be radically different. I, I think that is exactly the way to health, and I think that is exactly the work of the gospel. Yeah. I might have heard you um, talk about that same idea in Jeremiah this prophetic call to envision something different, or even for Jeremiah leading, I think you've talked about leading the people into the abyss before they can experience restoration. That's exactly right. So I think that that all of the prophets, in in one way or another, the the three big ones of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but but the little ones too, what we call the minor prophets, uh, they, they are all doing that. They are trying to walk people out of a world that has failed and walk into a new world of goodness that God is giving them. And, of course, the prophets experience great resistance because uh, 
<laughs> People don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. And see, I think, Deb, that's exactly the situation we are in in our society. Mm. I think the reality of our society is that the old world of white domination has failed. And President Trump is leading a backward movement of seducing us into thinking that somehow that can all be recovered. What, what everybody who thinks about it knows uh, that we're not going to recover that. We are being led by the juices of history to have to live in a new way, in a new world that to many of us feels very threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, it's very useful to understand our social situation uh, in the U.S. as a liminal moment that wants us to face up not only to new possibilities, but also to great ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing the anger and the fear and the hate about how uneasy we are of having to live in that moment. That's right. And what is the prophetic voice for us in this moment when we're facing disorientation and ambiguity and we, some people feel they're, they're in the abyss or being led into the abyss? What's the, what's the call? The first call is to honesty, I think, to, to face up to where we are and how we got here. I think all the disclosures now of uh, sexual brutality We got here by racial and sexual maltreatment of many people, and that is not sustainable. So the first requirement is honesty, and I think the second requirement is courage to begin to think about how can our society be put back together uh, in a healthy kind of way. And if we do honesty... And if we do courage, then uh, we may come to where we can live in hope that is generative and possibility creating for us. Uh, So I think that's pretty much the menu that the ancient prophets laid out of honesty, courage, and out of them will come hope. And I think the reason some of us hang around the church is precisely because That really is what has been entrusted to the church. The church doesn't have any monopoly on it, but it is uh, our whole reason for being Hmm. is to walk this walk of faith. Yeah, I think that's really challenging, but so important. I think that's why I'm really drawn to this concept of liminality is that we tend to live in this linear path of just moving forward and you know, trying to reach this goal. Um, But the spiritual journey seems to be not a linear journey, but one that's cyclical, one that includes the wilderness, and not just as a place of exile, but also a place of hope. um, Because That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. I think your podcast program is going to make a very important contribution to this. That's great. Thank you. Just thinking of Hosea... I think it's Hosea 2, where it talks about, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make a valley of Achor a door of hope. 
Yes, that may be the best text of any text about this, but it's very important to recognize, as you know, that the uh, many verses in front of that talk about being abandoned by God and having to face up to huge loss. And, and I think it is in the face of that huge loss that the poet can then have God say, therefore I will allure you and I will speak sweet things to you and I will give you a future. And as you know, that chapter, Hosea 2, then goes on to talk about God's willingness to remarry God's people uh, and use all those wonderful covenant words of justice and righteousness, compassion and mercy. And mm. it, 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 you have put your hand on exactly the right text. Mm. So it requires us not just to be moving forward, but to be willing to lay to rest, to, to put to death some of the old things that are corrupt and contaminated as much as we refuse to see that in order to enter a place of hope. Is that what you're saying? I think that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. And what what we want to do, if you take Hosea 2, what we want to do is start reading at verse 14 and skip over the other stuff. Uh, So (laughs) what we want to do in the church years, we want to have Christmas, but we don't want to do the hard work of Advent. Or we want to celebrate Easter, but we don't want to do the hard work of Lent. I mean, it's just, that's the great seduction uh, into which we all fall. Yeah. Man, that is so true. I feel that. I feel like Lent has become, for me, the last few years, so crucial for even being able to approach Easter. Yep. But I think about that, of just where we are as a society and as a church at least from my tradition, which is from a Protestant tradition that has really stepped far away from the sacraments and uh, from those visible um, signs of the invisible reality. At some level, I'm just feeling grieved by that, that we're missing even a liminality there that affects change for us. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's exactly right. And I and I think the... the uh free churches that have more or less scuttled the sacraments uh, really have to recover the sacraments because how God works among us is mysterious. It cannot be laid out rationally, and, and the sacraments create space for exactly that liminal mystery of how God does transformation among us. Mm. And, the, and the churches that have gotten rid of the sacramental tradition are to some extent poverty-stricken about this. And and what happens when the church doesn't have a rich sacramental life is that the church becomes very didactic and probably becomes coercive about telling people what to do. That is incredibly unhelpful. Yeah, and it's really difficult to help people in, in those pastoral ways of just our spiritual formation journeys Uh, when we don't have those symbols and that depth of meaning to open up a space in which we can experience change within. That's exactly right. Yep, yep. I want to talk a little bit more about imagination, because I know that's really something that's so important to you. And poetry, I know that you have written poems, or do you call them poems or prayers? What do you you call them? I call them prayers. I call them prayers. Yeah, but they intend to be poetic. Okay. 
How has that journey been for you spiritually, of experiencing the process of writing poetically? Well, it, it was a big move for me. My whole nurture and my uh, early thinking was all very linear about my prayers and everything else, and it took me a long time to uh, let uh, poetic practice create some open space in the uh, public prayers that I have used. So I think what a prayer does, it invites us to uh, just play around with images and metaphors without having to uh, pin everything down. Too many prayers are just grocery lists <laughs> of uh, telling God what all we want or, or what we think we need. And that doesn't really make for uh, the kind of uh, transformative interaction that we so much really want and really need. Hmm. That's what I think. Hmm. And prayer really is such a wonderful, intimate, liminal space in a way, isn't it? It is. If, if it's not practiced in a kind of coercive or business-like way, but I think many of our prayers are an attempt to uh, conduct transactions, hmm. and uh, that really is uh, amazingly unhelpful. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it is. I, uh, let me say, Deb, that, that about imagination, if your uh, readers do not know my work, the uh, two books in which I've done the most on that, one of them is an older book called Prophetic Imagination, but a, more, a much more recent one is called Reality, Grief, Hope. Those are both my attempts, one early and one later, to lay out my understanding of imagination that would easily move in the direction of liminality. Mm. Victor Turner, he uses this phrase. He says, prophets and artists tend to be liminal and marginal people, edgemen, who strive with a passionate sincerity to rid themselves of the cliches associated with status, incumbency, and role-playing, and to enter into vital relations with other men in fact or imagination. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I love that. I was like, hey, I think, yep. I think yep. Walter Brueggemann's an edgeman. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I think that kind of artistry, whether it's with the, the church or outside the church, that kind of artistry makes many people very nervous because they see immediately that it is a threat to having everything settled and pinned down. Oh, and uh, the order, uh, the social order. <laughs> that's right, and the ethical order and everything. But the mystery is, we have to have stuff opened up or we cannot grow enough to remain human. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. How does imagination do that? Well, if you think that the word imagination is related to the word image, if you just take an image, and the Bible does this all the time, take an image like vineyard or a pot, a clay pot, and just walk around it. Walk around it to see what all it suggests to you. So you get, Jesus says, I am the vine and uh, you are the branches. But behind that is a lot of usage in the Psalms and in the prophets of God's goodness or God's anger about uh, vineyards that produce sour grapes or, or you just go in many directions. Or if you take a pot and God is the potter and we are being shaped, but then God will smash pots that are distorted and not functioning right. It just opens up mm. a lot of uh, freedom 
about thinking new thoughts, and the production of images and metaphors in the Bible is almost limitless. Uh, And uh, Jesus does much of that in his uh, parables. Who knew that we would think about virgins staying up with their lamps lit to welcome the bridegroom who arrives at midnight? What an image. Uh, and then you can then you can think of all the weddings you've been to and and the the good preparations and the bad preparations and and uh, some of the virgins who were not well dressed or some of them who pretended to be virgins but really weren't virgins anymore and on and on and on. You can you can have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> But it just doesn't seem very theological, right? That's right. That's right. Oh, man. I think I've learned the most about imagination from my daughter. She's six. And a friend of mine just wrote a book about imaginative prayer. And so I thought, well, she's a little young for this book, but I'm just going to... When we pray at night, instead of doing a regular, you know, what's your list of things to pray for and what you're thankful for, I've just saying, let's imagine that we are, you know, she's really into outer space. Let's imagine that we're flying through outer space and just looking at the universe and thinking about God through this space here. And it has been amazing to watch her just flourish in her awareness of God, even just by joining her in her imagination and just Isn't opening up this space. Isn't it? It's been... It Shocking. And she is, she is lucky to have such a mother. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, that's great. Oh, that's I'm great. learning from her. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> oh. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult because we culturally do not value imagination. Um, it's something that we attribute to, to childhood or innocence or whatever and immaturity. But I think there's so much wisdom there and potential for for growth and transformation. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, are there any any poems or prayers, as you call them, that have really meant a lot to you that you could read for us? Since you forewarned me, I, I pick out one kind of long, uh, Practitioners of Memos. Here we are, Practitioners of Memos. We send email and receive it. We copy and forward it and save it and delete it. We write to move the data and organize the program and keep people informed and know and control and manage. We write and we receive one-dimensional memos that are at best clear and unambiguous. And then, in breathtaking ways, you summon us to song. You by your very presence, call us to lyrical voice. You, by your book, give us cadences of praise that we sing and say, Alleluia, Alleluia. You, by your hymnal, give us many voices toward thanks and gratitude and amazement. You, by your betraying absence, call us to lament and protest, complaint, All our songs are toward you in praise, in thanks, and in need. We sing figure and image and parallel and metaphor. We sing thickness according to our coded community. We sing and draw close to each other and so to you. 
we sing, things become flesh. But then the moment breaks, and we sink back into memos. How many pages? When is it due? Do you need footnotes? We are hopelessly memo kinds of people. So we pray by the power of your spirit, give us some song-infused days, deliver us from memo-dominated nights, give us a different rhythm of dismay and promise of candor and hope of trusting and obeying. Give us the courage to withstand the world of memo and to draw near to your craft of life given in the wind. We pray back to you, the wind made flesh. We pray, come soon. We say, Amen. Amen. Wow. Now, you see, what I, what I did in that, I just walked around the image of a memo and then thought about how controlling memos are and what kind of speech would liberate us from memos. Yeah. Well, that's sort of how I worked that out. I think what really captivated me with that is your anecdote to memo of song and worship and just including in that um, lament and need with all tied together. Yep. Memo, memos cover things over, and the challenge is to get beneath the cover. Yep. Yeah. What a great poem. Thank you for sharing that. That is exactly, Deb, that comes from my book, uh, Prayers for Privileged People, if anybody's interested. Okay. That sounds like an excellent book. I have not read that one. I've got your book, Odd to Heaven, Rooted in Earth, which yeah. I... This one, this one a bit later, yeah. Okay. That kind of raised in me a question about worship. What's been your experience of worship and even the experience of liminality in that? Many, many days, worship is, uh, for me, is very routine. and You just kind of go through the motions. But every once in a while, um, in the middle of it, with ways we can't explain, it becomes revelatory, and, and I get a new uh, glimpse of the reality of God, and therefore a new glimpse of the reality of my own life. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it happens through the quiet of the music. Uh, it happens in the uh, majestic cadences of the liturgy mm. for communion, the Eucharist. Often it's a it's a turn of a phrase that's fresh, suggestive. Hmm. I've been working a lot on uh, hymns lately, and it's just amazing about the imagery of the great hymns of the church. I think when you think about memos, the, the so-called praise hymns that are so popular, they're basically memos. They don't open up anything. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> it's too bad that we use stuff like that when we have the great hymns that invite us to different worlds. Yeah. You wrote in, uh, in Text Under Negotiation, you said that our fearful and desperate society, um, that people have few occasions for liminality, for hosting ambiguity where God's newness is given. And then you um, kind of commented that the elite may find it in the arts or the rich may find it in therapy, but for most people, it's in the moment of worship, exhibit 
visible signs of invisible reality. This is the, the primal place in which liminality makes serious change possible. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't mean that it can't happen elsewhere, but I think that that is an amazingly available resource. But I think that much of the church, liberal and conservative, has messed that up by being overly didactic. And uh, didacticism is the uh, negative counterpoint to liminality. Mm. So you get strong moral advocacy, and that closes things down. Hmm. That's really good. Yep. Did you have one more poem that you wanted to read? Well, here's one. Okay. It's entitled, uh, Ourselves at the Center. We are your people, mostly privileged, competent, entitled. Your people who make futures for ourselves, seize opportunities, get the job done and move on. But in our self-confidence, we expect little beyond our productivity. We wait little for that which lies beyond us and then settle with ourselves at the center. And you, you in the midst of our privilege, our competence, our entitlement, you utter large, deep oaths beyond our imagined futures. You say, Fear not, I am with you. You say, nothing shall separate us. You say something about a new heaven or a new earth. You say, you are mine, I have called you by name. You say, my faithfulness will show concretely and will abide. And we find our privilege eroded by your purpose, our competence shaken by your future, our entitlement unsettled by your other children. Give us grace to hear your promises. Give us freedom to trust your promises. Give us patience to wait and humility to yield our dreamed future to your large purpose. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is your deep yes over our lives. powerful. What has that poem meant to you, that prayer? Well, it's a, it's a kind of, a, of an acknowledgement that most of the time I imagine myself at the center of the universe. And uh, in my candor, uh, I know it's not true that I don't need to be at the center of the universe, and I cannot be at the center of the universe and, and cannot make it there. Uh, so it's both a, a summons and it is an assurance to me that not being at the center of reality, it's okay. Uh, there are other resources of, other than the ones I have. Hmm. That's an <laughs> yeah. important message for, for especially the entitled and elite of us today. Yep. That's why the book is entitled Prayers for Privileged People. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, that's wonderful. I just wonder if you have any uh, final thoughts that you'd like to share about liminality and or how you would call well, us uh, forward. Yep, I, I do think that your allusion to your daughter is so important that uh, liminality comes easier to people who are not in charge. It comes easier to children, 
it probably comes easier to old people. I think it comes easier to poor people, which is why Jesus liked to be with them. The more we are in charge, the less we can operate in liminality because it feels like a threat to us. So uh, that's kind of a, an observation about those to whom we need to pay attention. Mm. Mm. Not just to help, but to listen as well, to be with. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to me as I, I get out to a lot of churches, and uh, people say, uh, I just wrote a poem I'd like to share with you, and they give it to me. It's almost always women. And, uh, you know, women historically are uh, less at the center of power. Uh, So the more we are at the center of the power, the less we are able to practice or articulate this, I think. Mm. That's a good call for those who are church leaders who are within systems of power. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing this conversation with me. Conversation is also liminal, right? (laughs) Yes, that's right. Well, it's good to talk to you, and I wish you well with your uh, new venture. Thanks so much. Bye, Adam. All right, bye-bye. Through conversations, which I believe are some of the most betwixting spaces, We learn about ourselves as we listen to others. And so I'm so thankful to share this conversation with Dr. Brueggemann. And I hope that you found it inspiring and challenging and that it might draw you into face-to-face conversations of your own. But now let me leave you with a portion of a poem entitled On the Pulse of Morning by the late poet laureate Maya Angelou. It was read in the 1993 presidential inauguration. The horizon leans forward May we have the courage to step into the dawn and say, good morning. Lift up your hearts. Each new hour holds new chances for new beginnings. Do not be wedded forever to fear, yoked eternally to brutishness. The horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here, on the pulse of this fine day, You may have the courage to look up and out and upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country, no less to Midas than the mendicant, no less to you now than the mastodon then. Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. 
special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Space,